By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. You only have, say, 90 minutes in a workday. What actually is going to make a difference? What is going to move the needle in my career, in my business? And often it's it's a very different answer than you'd expect. It's this moment of truth where you have to you have to look yourself in the mirror and just be so honest. As long as I thought that money was evil, business was bad, everything in that world was bad, those are some of the most powerful forces in the world. I was like a you know, someone in the desert finding water. I saw and I studied, I really looked into the numbers, like what actually makes a difference in people's lives. And honestly, you can boil it down to one thing. Hey friends, and welcome back to Deep Dive, the ongoing podcast where every week I sit down with inspiring authors, creators, entrepreneurs, and other inspiring people. Uh, inspiring, I said that twice, doesn't matter. Uh, and we talk about strategies and tools that can help us live our best lives. And we talk about their journeys and how they got to where they are. This conversation that you're about to hear is a conversation between me and my internet friend and now real life friend, Tiago Forte. Tiago is one of the world's foremost experts on productivity, apparently, and has written a book, which I've got here somewhere called Building a Second Brain. It's a book that's just come out fairly recently, but actually I took his course, Building a second brain in 2019 and it completely changed my life I would say it changed the way I approach my business so with the way I approach my life and content creation and my YouTube channel and all the things my brother jokes that like just like I am the productivity guru for various people on the internet Tiago is my personal productivity guru. We talk about a bunch of things like life organization and productivity and about the concept of money and how is uh, how to think about navigating what you actually want to do with your life. We talk a bunch about like misunderstandings around what it means to actually be productive. And then we do a deep dive into the methodology of building a second brain that will help you hopefully organize your life and organize your creative output, whether that's in your work or in your personal life. So I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Tiago Forte. This is going to be an interesting conversation. So this is the first time you and I are meeting in the flesh. Yes. And I've been following your stuff for the last three years mm. now. And I remember the moment where I discovered you. It was mm. my brother who actually recommended your stuff to me, saying mm. that, look, Ali, you know how you are the productivity guru for all these people on your mm. YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Tiago should be your productivity guru. And I was like, <laughs> cool. I went on Forte Labs and I binged all of the blog posts and all that stuff. Took the course, Building a Second Brain. Mm. And then we've been kind of friends on Twitter for the last like, Three years yeah um and on various zoom calls here and there uh so much stuff to talk to you about i think your journey is pretty inspiring we will talk about the blog we'll talk about productivity and creativity but the place i wanted to start with is that you recently became a dad yes and you have another child on the way and i cannot imagine what quote like being a parent does and like stress tests your time management and like productivity systems so like how did I guess you, you were a productivity bro before being a dad, and now you're a productivity bro meets a dad. What was the difference between these two modes of operation? Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, became a dad about 18 months ago. Um, it just radically constrains your time, energy, attention, bandwidth, all of it, mm. uh, in, in multiple ways. I mean, obviously you wanna spend hours a day. This is something I would not have guessed. Can't, it's painful to be away from my kid for a day. Like, I wouldn't think that that would be true of me. I thought, you know, I, I can go on trips or I can, I don't know, go on business trips, but I need to see him every day. If I don't, it's painful, it hurts. And so now suddenly I have an hours a day commitment, but a commitment that I, I love, I, I really enjoy, um, 
which is such a contrast to before where, you know, before having a kid, before getting married especially, I just had unlimited, if I wanted to stay up all night and just, you know, binge learn something, I did. If I wanted to spend the whole weekend doing something, I did. There were almost no constraints on my time. I'd say that's the biggest difference. And how does that like, you know, obviously you're a parent now, you're trying to juggle this like business that you've got as well, writing a book. What what effect does this kind of big thing in your life, i.e. wife and kid, have on the other aspects of your life? I'm asking selfishly because I'm very curious as to how, because already I feel like, oh, I don't have enough time. Yeah. But then I think, but I'm, I don't even have a kid. Like, come on, I've got yeah. it easy. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to imagine the transition before it happens. Um, but I think it's it's hard it's it's painful because it's just so much change you just have a way you're you're used to spending your time and it has to all change but i think now you know approaching two years in it's it was helpful uh it's actually interesting the having the kid coincided almost perfectly with hiring a team Mm. with hiring people and you know i've always heard the advice oh you need to delegate you need to outsource you need to you know pick the five percent what is the five percent that the one percent most valuable stuff but until you actually need to you don't do that Mm. like you think you do but when you only have say 90 minutes in a workday it's this moment of truth where you have to you have to look yourself in the mirror and just be so honest right like what actually is going to make a difference what is going to move the needle in my career in my business and often it's it's a very different answer than you'd expect so i, th- I think overall basically to answer your question it's been a forcing function it's been a helpful constraint where i just wake up in the morning and i have to ask myself an answer what is the number one thing that i need to get done today and just focus all of my attention on that ah oh, okay because mm. i kind of do this i i ask myself what's the number one thing i need to get done today mm. but then i actually have quite a lot of time to do the thing yes or and and it's actually on days where the calendar is chock a block with something yes like this conversation or the the video we just did for the channels and, and and so on where it's like oh crap make progress on chapter one of my book or write 500 words yeah i only have this 30 minute block to do this in yeah and then it gets done like parkinson's law and, and yes but when i had the whole day for filming a video it takes the whole day to film the video exactly it's it's really true um so changing gears a little bit um well, one thing i like to ask guests mm. is how did we get here how did <laughs> you and i end up sitting across from each other and you end up being one of the world's most foremost experts on productivity what what was the journey yeah, I mean, first of all, I just I just wrote that. <laughs> uh, I just, you know, almost aspirationally, in fact, very aspirationally, maybe three, four years ago, said, who, who do I want to be? How do I want to present myself to the world? And I wrote that. It wasn't true at the time. But it's something funny about kind of credibility and expertise. If certain people say it, it's true. Mm. And that's true of something like one of the world's foremost experts. Now that it's that's been printed in the New York Times, in the Harvard Business Review, on radio shows and podcasts and different YouTube channels, it's kind of, it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but how that happened, I don't know, how, how far back do you wanna go? <laughs> so what did you do at uh, after school? <laughs> yes, let's see, I studied business. Um, so I graduated in 2009. Okay. 2000, end of 2008, 2009, which if you remember in the US was the financial meltdown, the financial implosion. So there were no jobs, there were no possibilities. I had no particular skill. I really, like, I, I'm not just saying this, I really had no particular thing that I was uniquely good at. I'd studied business, which is kind of just like the standard thing to do. Uh, and so I joined the Peace Corps. Oh, Are you okay. familiar with the Peace Corps? No, what is that? I've heard yeah. of it. But. <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's a US government agency, basically. Uh, that's existed since the 70s or late 60s that basically 
pays U.S. volunteers of all ages to go to usually developing countries and serve for two years. I was there two years and three months. So I went to Eastern Ukraine, hmm. the far Eastern portion of Ukraine near the Russian border. And this is very random, but I was an English teacher there at a, at a high school, combined middle school, high school uh, for two years when I was in my early 20s, mid 20s. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's like you were at this point where you didn't really know what to do with your life. Exactly. Like, Let's do this thing. Yeah. It seems kind of cool. So what well, what happened next? That's exactly what it was. I had yeah. no idea what I wanted to do. There was nothing that seemed particularly appealing. And so I just thought, how can I, how can I extend the student lifestyle yeah. where someone just tells me what to do <laughs> for a couple more years? That, that's what the Peace Corps was. Okay. Um, and it was an it was an amazing experience. It was challenging. I mean, you have those Siberian style winters. You know, I'm from California. To me, before Ukraine, a cold winter was like, oh, it's in the 50s, 50s Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is, Celsius. Um, but I, I had no experience of real winters. So that was challenging. Um, I was in the town completely by myself. The Peace Corps doesn't want Americans to be in the same place because then they just hang out together all the time. Yeah. So I was the only American, only English speaker for many miles around. And I think what I learned is I learned that I like teaching. I was an English teacher. So I was, you know, I had a day job. I would go every day to the school and, and teach, you know, from third grade to 11th grade. So I had experience teaching from really kids all the way to, you know, near adults. Uh, I learned that I love teaching. I learned, um, actually, that was the first time I, I taught kind of productivity related things. Oh, how's it? At the time, it was, it was basically study skills. Okay. Because I would go into these classrooms and, the, you know, the Ukrainian, which is basically like a legacy Soviet education system, is so old school. Like until you've experienced what a decades old school system is like, it's, it's very different. There was no concept of study skills. It was just everything was pure rote memorization. Oh, okay. Everything was just this is the teacher talking at you for the whole class period. Memorize it, regurgitate it for the test. Mm. And so I started teaching, you know, how to take notes, how to set goals, even just like for your class, how to make a schedule. Like imagine a student who has never had to make a schedule, never had to look at their agenda. Uh, and I just saw what a tremendous difference it made. You know, just as one example, I would teach my 10th and 11th formers uh, how to do these things. And then they would use those skills to apply to university, get into university, which is a completely life-changing, you know, um, life-changing thing for them. And so that combination of kind of productivity, study skills, project management with teaching really started to spark something in me during those two years. Oh, okay. And I guess that's, that's when like the, the word productivity, I feel like hasn't like would have become popular after that time. So how, how were you thinking about it when you were teaching these things? Yeah, yes, that's a good point. I didn't think of it as productivity, productivity at the time. I didn't know, I wasn't familiar with this whole world of thought leaders and blogs, none of that. You know, I was only 24 years old, uh, hadn't had any exposure. And so I, I came back from Ukraine uh, to get my first sort of real professional job in San Francisco. And I, so I went from, you know, a village in Eastern rural Ukraine straight to the epicenter of Silicon Valley mm. in a matter of like a couple months. It's a complete culture shock, reverse culture shock, yeah. right? Which in some ways is harder than culture shock. You go to Eastern Europe, you expect I'm gonna have some difficulty. You come back to California, I, you know, I came back to my home state. And I, I just remember most of all being just so shocked by the pace of work. You know, we were in a co-working space in downtown San Francisco, surrounded by startups. It was it was the quintessential information overload. The speed at which communication happened, email happened, collaboration happened, was completely foreign to me at that time. Okay, what 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 do you mean by that? Like the pace of pace of work? 
it was just so fast. I mean, in yeah. the morning we'd have a meeting, someone has an idea, then the hour after the meeting, they write it up, and mm -hmm. then midday at lunch, they're discussing the next iteration, and then by the afternoon, it might be written up in a document that is shared with colleagues around the world. Okay. And to do all that, it wasn't just going fast. You had to absorb a lot of information, manage a lot of information, keep track of a lot of information. So around this time, I was introduced to productivity apps. I was introduced to digital note-taking apps, Evernote and others. I was introduced really to social media. I had been on like you know Facebook and, and things like that before, but it was such a crash course in just what it means to be a knowledge worker and kind of just like a modern information-centric person. Yeah, and I guess if I think of kind of most jobs these days, it is that kind of knowledge work where mm -hmm. really there's information flying mm -hmm. at you from all angles. Mm -hmm. Even even in medicine, to be honest, like. Yeah a big chunk of the way I operated as a doctor was using productivity principles to figure out like prioritization and to-do list management and figuring out my schedule yeah. for the day, being like, okay, from one till two, I've got a teaching block. I yeah. know the ward round is from eight till 11. So between 11 and one, I need to do this list of jobs. Let's figure out the ones that rely on other people being a bottleneck, like yes. getting radiology to approve my scan request first. And then, okay, cool. Let's do the stuff that requires waiting on things. Yeah. And so I'd almost have like a waiting for list on my little page. Yeah. Um, started using the iPad. People would always be like, oh, you're using your iPad. What's that like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it seems like more and more jobs are actually about managing knowledge and managing information flows. I think that's that's mostly what jobs are these days. Is your if you boil it down to the most basic elements, you have inputs, you process those inputs, and turn them into outputs. Mm. And you can map this to to literally any, any job, any kind of work, which is cool because once you 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 sort of boil it down to that level, you can learn from anyone. You can look at chefs, and I've I've learned a tremendous amount from chefs. You can look at construction. My brother's a construction manager, a contractor. I learned things from him. Mm. I've talked to truck drivers, musicians, comedians. At when, at the most basic level of inputs and outputs, we're all doing the exact same thing, and therefore we can all learn from each other. Mm. Yeah, it, re it reminds me that there's um, uh, Bertrand Russell has an essay in praise of idleness, mm. where he talks about um, how, and he he wrote this in like the 1930s or something like that. Mm. Uh, maybe in the 1910s about how how the modern world is obsessed with productivity. Yeah, <laughs> and he sort of was was writing this 100 years ago, and he was saying, "Well, what is the definition of a job? A job is moving matter at yeah. or above the Earth's surface, or telling other people to do that." <laughs> and I think, and then our friend Paul, Paul Millard expanded on that definition, or which is like either moving matter or moving pixels, or telling other people to move matter or pixels yeah. at the Earth's surface. And that's basically what we're doing is jobs. Yeah. And we build our whole lives around this kind of construct of a job and our whole identities around you know yeah. me feeling like oh my god I don't have a job like once I leave medicine what am I going to do like who am I all of these things is basically either moving something from A to B or moving a pixel from A to B or telling other people to do that it's so true it, it's kind of crazy that that is our jobs that is what we do we have to become experts in these weird esoteric fields you know like something like you know personal knowledge management or UX design or you know uh these different methodologies like Agile or Scrum, these used to be such a rarefied abstract for like academics and like universities. Now, you know, there's actually power in dabbling in those things and applying them. Yeah. Because I think the, I think the, the thing that's interesting about that, that basic level of inputs and outputs is that there's so much variation in how well people do that. Mm. There's orders of magnitude variation. You oh, think it's okay. just inputs, outputs, but there's clearly, if you just look at the economy, look at the world. There's some people that do it very badly and some people that do it astronomically well. 
So in this episode, Tiago and I talked a lot about the idea of productivity, but there's one productivity book in particular, in addition to, of course, Building a Second Brain, Tiago's book, that I really enjoyed over the last few months, and that is 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It by Oliver Berkman, who we in fact had as a guest on the previous season of Deep Dive, so you can check that out, that'll be linked down below and in the show notes. It's genuinely a really good book, and it's all about kind of the finitude of time, and it's about like existentialism, and it's about like, what is the point of all this productivity? And it just takes a little bit more of a a balanced and uplifting and nice view of the whole productivity thing. But if you want to get the key ideas from the book, and maybe you don't quite have time to read the book in its entirety, you might like to check out the summary of the book over at Shortform, who are very kindly sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you haven't heard by now, Shortform is the world's best book summary service. It's way better than all of the other competitors, who I shall not name, <laughs> that I've tried out over the years. And it's way more than just book summaries. So they've got one-pagers for every book on the in the catalog, but they also have detailed chapter by chapter summaries, so you can dive deeper into it. And the other cool thing is that they also have these little short form notes. So for example, if the author of a book makes a particular point, if that point is particularly controversial, or there's an author of a different book who's argued against that point, then short form will flag that up within the summary itself with a little short form note. So they'll say, for example, that, hey, if you've read Grit by Angela Duckworth, you'll find that she argues the exact opposite of what Oliver Berkman is arguing for in 4,000 weeks. And it's just really nice because it gives you a balanced perspective rather than just imagining that a single author's word, just because it's packaged up in book format is gospel truth. The way I use short form personally is that firstly, if I get a book recommendation and I'm not 100% sold on reading the book immediately, then I will look up the summary of it on short form and based on how I feel about the summary, then I will decide whether I do or don't want to read the book. I also use it because it's a great way of revisiting things I've learned from books I've already read. So for example, my two main ways of doing that are number one, rereading my Kindle highlights, which is all the stuff that personally resonated with me. But it's also really useful to read the short form summary to see if there's anything that I've missed or any particular, in particularly interesting point that has sparked some kind of thought that resonates with something I read recently. It's just genuinely good for getting a detailed summary of the thing that I can then follow up on if I want. If any of that sounds up your street, then head over to shortform.com forward slash deep dive. And that URL will give you a 20% discount on the annual premium subscription. So yeah, thank you so much Shortform for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I want to talk a, a little bit about the concept of productivity mm. because in a way, you know, and I guess you and I are very sort of plugged into this particular ecosystem and so we can maybe see the trend, but it seems like the world has or at least the people we follow on Twitter, has sort of moved away from productivity. Mm -hmm. And now I feel a little bit like, ugh, when, you know, I was I was interviewed on a podcast and they, told, they called me a productivity expert. Yeah. It's like, oh, I guess, I'm, okay, fine, fair enough. Now I am. Uh, now I'm a, I guess I'm a productivity <laughs> expert. But also a lot of people seem to be like, oh, well, what's the point of productivity? Like, yeah. life is about more than just productivity kind, yeah. of, kind of thing. Like, yeah. how, how do you approach the word productivity, which I think yeah. has industrial age kind of connotations of cranking up more and more widgets. Yeah, so a couple of things. First, I like industrial age stuff. <laughs> um, one of my biggest sources of inspiration has been modern manufacturing, uh, the theory of constraints, just-in-time manufacturing, um, you know, high-velocity manufacturing, automated manufacturing. I think sometimes we disparage that stuff to our, you know, to our detriment. Um, mod manufacturing today is not, you know, like in the 1920s, these dirty, soot-filled, you know, exploitative um, factories. It is, it is something much different. It's very precise. It's very technology-centric. It's very collaborative. Um, so I don't, I don't mind using factories as a kind of metaphor. Um, but to kind of answer your question more directly, I think of productivity as a phase. It's a, a phase phase in, phase in someone's life. Okay. There is a, a phase in your life, or it could recur, so there could be different phases. 
where you have to think about productivity and then there's other phases where you think about creativity. I really see productivity and creativity as two sides to the same coin. Uh, and where I learned about this was from my dad. My dad is one of the most creative people I've ever met, wildly imaginative, creative. But how does that creativity make it out into the world is productivity. So he has these, these very systematic approaches and routines and rules that he uses from you know, the time of day that he paints from this time to this time, to how long he's gonna spend on each stage of a painting, to the way that he takes notes. And so I see this kind of like pendulum, productivity, creativity, productivity, creativity. And if you go too far on either end of the spectrum, you start hitting diminishing returns and you start to get stuck. Right, like, like on both sides. So you can get so fixated on productivity, your work starts to become formulaic, it starts to become very boring, and it's time to, to kind of go to the other end of the spectrum, creativity. But then you can go too far in creativity. That's when you get too precious. You get too, oh no, that's my art, it has to be this certain way. And you know, you talk to someone six months later, what are you doing? Oh, I'm working on my, my one painting for the last six months. That also doesn't work. You're not, you're, you're getting stuck, you're getting, you're getting sort of locked up in your own preciousness. And so I, I really see them as this kind of alternating back and forth pendulum. Nice. Yeah, I had, I had a bit of a thought as, as you were saying that. And I think I've, I've never really thought of the two as being being separate. I, get, I, I guess, you know, given that a bunch of videos I make happen to be vaguely themed around productivity, mm. when people ask me, oh, what is productivity to you? Mm. I kind of take a step back, I broaden it out, and I say, oh, productivity is just using your time intentionally. Yeah. Um, which then makes it a more like gentle definition that you can mm -hmm. apply to your personal life, mm -hmm. to your work life, and mm -hmm. who doesn't want to use the time more intentionally. Yeah. But there's something about the word productivity that feels a bit more like, ugh. It, it, it feels very worky yeah. and very much like I'm generating economic output for my employer and this is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, so productivity is like efficiency. Efficiency is sort of a synonym, right? What is efficiency? If you, again, if you go back to manufacturing, it's simply minimizing waste. That's how I think of it, mm. which is one of the most important things in life. Like when people say productivity doesn't matter, I go, does it not matter that you not waste your time? You know, does it not matter that you waste your attention? Does it not matter that you waste your ideas? Does it not matter that you waste your potential? Like, isn't that like almost what life is about? Mm. And it's easy to lose sight of that if you think of efficiency, but I, I really just think about it as minimizing waste. Uh, and then the other thing I was gonna say, oh, think about other uses of the word productivity, a productive conversation. Would you say a productive conversation is, is you know, not, is, uh, is anti-human or is not benevolent or is kind of removing the humanity? No, I want all my, the most intimate conversation with my wife, I still want to be productive. That doesn't mean it's not a good conversation. Yeah. Um, or alternatively, think of a productive ecosystem. Productive ecosystem, the forest is a productive ecosystem, not because we went in and clear cut everything and built a parking lot, but because there is value being created, right? And you could say economic value, but I just think of there's plants being grown, there's animals that are surviving, there's evolution that's happening, there's families, animals and humans that are being raised from the sustenance of the forest. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like to, to use the word productivity because it confronts people. That's what I like. Ooh, I yeah. want people to be confronted. Okay. Because the same thing that has you kind of be triggered by productivity, if you follow that thread, you're gonna get to an incorrect assumption, a limiting belief, a blind spot that is going to limit you in life and in your career. Oh, that is beautiful. <laughs> I can feel my kind of mindset changing about that because I've also been like, yeah, I agree, productivity is a bit of a dirty word. So let, let's not use that word. Let's call it intentionality or something like that. But I like how you're just like, yep, 
productivity is a good thing. Like, of course it's a good thing. Um, interesting. Um, okay, so again, when people like uh, the, the anti-productivity movement mm-hmm. seems to treat productivity as being all about work mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. and would say that, oh, but like personal life and wellness and mm-hmm. like self-care mm-hmm. is like really, really important and like stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you think of this separation of productivity as being like work versus personal life or like how, how do you think about it? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, being productive is ultimately about having a, a career you love. I mean, you're not going to get the jobs you want. You're not going to start the business you want. You're not going to advance if you're not productive. You're just not. Mm. It's wishful thinking. And so you have to learn it and then go beyond it. But the way I think of this, too, is... Um, you know, most of my 20s, I was working in nonprofits. I worked for a microfinance nonprofit in Colombia uh, during university as part of my study abroad. I taught English in Brazil and then later in Ukraine. Uh, I worked for the government in the Peace Corps. So like a majority of my 20s, I was a bleeding heart humanitarian. I was going to dedicate my life to, to, to service, really. It's what I wanted to do. But I, I became disillusioned with that whole idea because I saw and I studied, I really looked into the numbers, like what actually makes a difference in people's lives? What knowledge, what training, what sometimes it's called capacity building or whatever it is. And honestly, you can boil it down to one thing. If you want to improve someone's life, life outcomes, all of them, increase their income. Hmm. Increase their income. If you can raise that one dial the downstream effect that they will take care of all the rest. They'll improve their health. Their family will be healthier. They'll improve their neighborhood. They'll improve their psychology. They'll invest in education. It's almost like people can be trusted. People know what's best for them, but they need the resources. So I made this hard pivot. I I thought business for years was evil, was bad. I'm not gonna do business. I made this hard pivot from like humanitarian stuff into business because I just thought I'm gonna focus all my attention on helping people have amazing careers and amazing businesses because that's how they raise their income and then everything else is going to be positively impacted. Interesting. How did you get to that knowledge, that, that conclusion that the thing that matters is raising people's income? Because that I've, I've not heard that idea before. I've heard like, oh, the thing that matters is education for girls and yeah. raising the whatever of a, a country or the thing that matters is sanitation or vaccination or all these things. Like what, what lands you on income? Yeah, this might be a bit controversial. I don't even know, I don't know if anyone, if everyone would agree with that. Um, but where it really came from was my research in microfinance. Microfinance is funny because it is, it's not, it's a nonprofit, it's humanitarian, it's, you know, development work, but it's also finance. And all the research that's been done, there's some, there's actually some major problems with microfinance, but there's some very clear research that you know, people, if they just have loans, like what is more mercenary than loans? What is more like, oh, yeah. like, even, oh my gosh, loans that have finance charges and you're charging them interest. And yet for a lot of people, microfinance has had a tremendous impact. Uh, I guess it just comes from seeing that in action. You know, I worked for a, a nonprofit in Colombia in the coastal region of Cartagena, which is the poorest part of Colombia and one of the poorest parts of Latin America. And our loans were like $50 a hundred dollars, few hundred dollars. They just needed a little, like by our standards, like we spend that much on a dinner or like a lunch, right? And they would make investments. They would buy, you know, a cart for their business. They would send their kids to school uh, for a month or two. They would they would make these little changes that then had cascading effects. Um, and I guess it's just something I observed that, that increasing your, like 
it's I think very well established that high, higher incomes are correlated and I think causal from all these other things, right? Like how are you going to improve your health if you don't have money? If you have zero financial resources, what, what are you gonna do? Like you just don't have that many options. I love that, that's great. Like I've, uh, you know, since over the last year or two, my YouTube channel has taken a soft pivot rather than a hard pivot, mm-hmm. or a lot towards talking about like business and entrepreneurship and making money. Mm-hmm. And I will occasionally get comments from people being like, I liked your YouTube channel when you were talking about how to study for your exams. Yeah. But now all you talk about is how to make money. And yeah. This is bad. Yeah. And I've always kind of thought that like, they're right in that that is now the thing that I talk about. But like the way I see it that, you know, I'm, I'm all about kind of helping people to live their best lives yeah. and me trying to do that myself and hopefully yeah. trying to be a sort of a documentarian of what I'm doing to live my best life so that yeah. people can as well. And like without, without having money, it's like, what are you, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, in, in the, the sort of the first world problem that me and most of my close friends have is like, oh, you know, I want to be self-actualized. I want my job to be the thing that I enjoy. I don't want to be a wage slave. Mm-hmm. My, my, my housemate, um, you know, works, works 14 hours a day for management consulting. And she's mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's fun, but like it's, it's, it's too many hours. Yeah. I can't live my best life because I'm spending all that time with my employer. Yeah. And she started the YouTube channel, started a podcast, started a business, trying to do business coaching on the side to mm-hmm. build up these streams of income mm-hmm. to buy her the freedom yes. to then use her life energy, the limited time we have on this earth. Yeah on something that she actually wants to do, i.e. helping women's education, yeah. rather than trying to make a rich management consultant company a little yeah. bit richer. Yeah. And without money, and, and, and so I think it's very easy to, um, it's very easy to cast shade on people that yeah. talk about money, yeah. thinking that like, oh, evil capitalist, oh, making yeah. money is just about exploiting the poor or whatever terminology yeah. people use for this. But actually yeah. like making money is how you raise this, Every, everything else in everything. the capitalist society that we live in. It's what you just said. Money is the, the most fungible resource. It's the easiest thing to exchange for anything else, mm. even more than time. Because yeah. money you, you need anyway to just live, to survive. So if you're going to do that anyway, I mean, money can be exchanged for freedom, like you said. It can be exchanged for connections. Yeah. It can be exchanged for, I mean, the other thing that I, I really care a lot about and invest a lot of time in is, is personal development. And personal development is so expensive. Even something like, this is a great example, of a Pasana meditation retreat yeah. is free. Anywhere in the world, there's centers all over, free, 100% free, no cost. But they're 10 days. For you to, to take 10 days off from work and and like offload your responsibilities so no so you don't have to be in touch with anyone because you have no phone that's more that's hard to even calculate the monetary value of that so even for something that is free you spend a lot of time in uh and so i just think money is this kind of base layer it's this kind of basic security that you need it's like maslow's you know hierarchy you need a certain foundation to be able to invest in freedom self-development creativity productivity all these other things depend on your income Interesting. I need to stop saying the word interesting. People keep telling me I use the word interesting too much. Um, so there's a book on that bookshelf called Happy Sexy Millionaire by mm-hmm. Stephen Bartlett. Mm-hmm. Um, is this, um, yeah, um, podcast hoster, uh, podcast host, entrepreneur um, mm-hmm. based in the UK. And he has a phrase that health is your first foundation mm-hmm. because like without health, there is nothing else. And there's no mm-hmm. point having loads of money if you don't mm-hmm. have the health. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you just said almost sounds as if money is your first foundation. And I, I, I wonder, like, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I, I, I wonder to what extent it's like, once you have sufficient money, mm-hmm. then at that point, health becomes your first foundation. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, it's very hard to take care of your health when you literally broke because like, yeah. 
how are you going to find the time to do the healthy things and to yeah. eat the healthy meal and to cook the whole food in your own place yeah. when you're trying to work multiple jobs to make ends meet? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think there's definitely like a flywheel. They're synergistic with each other, but yeah, <clears throat> yeah being healthy is expensive. The t- healthier the food, the more expensive it is. And the, the worse the food is for you, the cheaper it is. Which is like, yeah. if you were gonna des- design an unhealthy society, that's how you would do it. Yeah. Make the worst stuff cheap and easy and convenient and fast and everywhere and make the, the healthy stuff difficult to access, easy to spoil, expensive. And so it takes, it takes a real investment to kind of get over to this side. Mm. Um, but, but I mean, obviously to, to make money, you also need to have a certain level of kind of biological yeah. you know, <laughs> stability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it comes to, comes to that law of uh, equal and opposite advice that yes. like for different people in different situations, the exact opposite advice may well work. Absolutely. So for someone like me and you, probably we should probably focus on our health yeah. more than making more money. Yes. But when we were in our early days, when we were in our early 20s, trying to sort of hustle or whatever, yeah. at that point, actually optimizing for making money is 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 not the worst thing you could do. Yeah. And spending the time cooking healthy foods, yeah. going to the gym and all that kind of stuff. Okay, fine. But like, you know, the, there are things at, di- at different points in our lives certain things become more needle moving than others. Yes. And I think for me, and this is the thing I encourage a lot of people to do, getting productive, uh-huh. becoming really good at your job, becoming really good at your studies, becoming yeah. really good at your work, becoming really good at the thing that you're doing to then start a business, to build up potential streams of income. Yeah. That is actually a really good thing to be doing when you're young. Plus it's yeah. really, really fun as well. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I, I, I really think in terms of seasons also, you know, like when I learn about whatever topic, let's say it's productivity, I don't want to be like a productivity fan. You know, I don't want to like mm. just casually once in a while as if it's as if it's like, I don't know, like per, like perusing a magazine like, oh, this is entertaining. Pick a pick a goal, pick a skill you want to learn, concentrate on it intensively, immerse yourself in, in it for a short amount of time and then go do something else. Mm. That's the whole point is you acquire a skill and then you step away and use it elsewhere. Yeah, because I guess the, the thing about productivity is that it's not an end in itself. Mm-hmm. It is like a means to the end of the thing that you want, i.e. Help, helping you just do the things you want. Yeah. And similarly, creativity is not an end in itself. It's mm-hmm. a tool to help you do the things that you want in the world, have the impact, live a happy, meaningful life, whatever people's goals are, which are broadly aligned with those things. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, as we said, going too far in one direction or another, you're in a way that there is a danger of worshiping at the altar of the tool yes. rather than the thing that the tool lets you do. Yeah. Like being a hammer enthusiast rather than being a carpenter or something like that. I don't know, I need to use that terminology. A hammer enthusiast. I have a, the, the world's greatest collection of hammers. Yeah. What have you built? Oh, no. This just is, I just collect hammers. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. People who collect hammers, but like it would be hard to argue that that has, you know, and un- unless that's the thing they they genuinely want to do, I find this with like no taking apps. I yeah. fall into the pattern of like, oh, let's try this one, let's try that one, yeah. and I become <clears throat> the collector of no taking apps rather than actually writing, which is and putting it out into the world, which is the thing I actually care about. Absolutely. Um, so we were in the process of your journey. So you so you joined San mm-hmm. went went back to San Francisco. Let's mm-hmm. say you're in your sort of early to late twenties, and you said that you made this hard pivot from the humanitarian stuff mm-hmm. to the business stuff. Mm-hmm. What was the story behind that pivot? How did that happen? I had, like I said, no business in money, investing, uh, productivity, business, none of this. But my mom gave me one night, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Ah, yeah. Rich Dad, Poor Dad changed everything because it was my first exposure. I was like a, I was like a, you know, someone in the desert finding water. 
I didn't know that's what I was missing. I, I was missing a relationship to, in that case, money, coming back to the subject of money, which was a relationship of abundance. You know, as long as I thought that money was evil, business was bad, everything in that world was bad, I was, those are some of the most pow, my, like most powerful forces in the world, right? And so I read that book, I read the whole book in one night, I couldn't sleep the entire night, read it through the night. And I just kind of was in a daze and I just thought, oh my gosh, business, this is what I realized from reading it, business can be the vehicle for everything that I wanna create in the world, for the impact, the positive impact I wanna have, the people I wanna help, the education I want to create, the life outcomes for people that I want to I want to change. Business can be my friend instead of my enemy, and I made a complete life pivot. Uh, went went from from studying uh, international development in school to studying international business. Uh, started you know writing uh, started writing and, and publishing my first little bits of content online. I really just chose business as my means for for having the impact I wanted to have. Why do so many people seemingly, at least the ones who are active on Twitter? Uh, why do they feel so like anti-business? I think it's our it's our yeah. conditioning. That's what we were taught. Mm. Yeah, that making money. People have so many. I'm sure you see this all the time. So many limiting beliefs around making money. Um, you know, making money means you are compromising your integrity. Making money means you're taking advantage of people. Making money means you are losing yourself and not being authentic. Like there's some belief, and we all have these. We never actually yeah. completely let go of all those beliefs. They're lurking back here in our psychology. Um, but those things, you know, they have truth in them, but they're not the truth. Yeah, like money is the root of all evil, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I remember two years ago now, a year and a half ago, uh, I had a call with you and our mutual friend David about uh, this <laughs> course that I was, I was gonna start at the Part-Time YouTuber Academy. And I was thinking, oh, you know, I'll do it as a pre-recorded thing. I'll sell it for like $200. Mm-hmm. Why don't we partner up on it? Because I don't like the idea of selling it myself. But yeah. if I sell it with you, then it's like, it makes it okay. <laughs> and what you and David were both kind of laughing. It was like, it sounds like you think making money is evil. Yeah. It sounds like you think selling something is evil. Yeah. But what if that's not true? Yeah. And you sort of challenged me to question my assumptions around that. Yeah. That actually, what is money? Money is an exchange of value. Yeah. And if you're providing something that is valuable, and doing it in a way that's like authentic and in, in, with integrity and stuff. Yeah. And people pay you for it. That's literally how the world runs. Yeah. And that is not an evil thing. Mm-hmm. And there are so many creators that I speak to now that I, I recount that conversation to when they're like, oh, it's okay for me to get do, to do a sponsored video mm-hmm. sponsored by Squarespace or mm-hmm. Brilliant or Skillshare or whoever happens to be sponsoring this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as I sell my own product, suddenly that becomes, oh, I, I, I couldn't do that. Yeah. My audience would hate me yeah. for becoming a seller, for selling my own thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so common. It's so common. And the internet almost makes this worse because you can just create free stuff forever and you'll get paid somehow, maybe like sponsorships or, you know, ads or something. But it's just a certain business model that we both found. Finding the most engaged people who are building their own businesses can can really be a great business and really impactful for them. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking before recording that someone can hear a piece of advice a hundred times but then you look them in the eye and you say, do X. X is the right path for you. And suddenly they're like, oh, wow, that really sunk in. It's the power of teaching. It's the power of coaching. It's the power of interactive, you know, forums. Mm. Yeah. Nice. So where I guess at this point, we're in your early 30s. You've made this pivot to business. Mm-hmm. How do you go from kind of humanitarian bro to kind of business bro to world's foremost productivity expert. <laughs> what, was, what was the journey there? There were a couple steps in between. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's see. I It took me years 
it took me years because I, you know, had that first uh, professional job in San Francisco, which was in consulting. Learned so much through consulting. Consulting is great for young people also because you just get exposure to so many different kinds of businesses. Every month there's a different client. And so one day you're in, you know, petroleum refine refinement. Another uh, month you're in like self-driving cars. Another month you're in something completely different, packaged goods. And so I kind of had this broad exposure to different businesses. Uh, the one I liked the most by far was education, mm. right? That's just what I loved. Uh, and I quit that job one day when I just couldn't take it anymore. I, I wish I could say I had a plan, but it was like rage quit. Like I just can't take this. Um, and the reason for that was I just remember putting in more hours than I had ever put into anything. I mean, consulting is brutal. You work just absurdly long days. You work late into the night, you work on weekends, you travel and work even longer. And I just realized, wait a minute, I can keep doing this for years. And I remember I had my first performance review. I always tell the story. The first time someone had ever sat down and talked about my career. What do you want for your career? It was, it was great. But then they, my manager laid out the path and, and she was like, okay, a couple more years, you can go from junior project manager to, to project manager. A couple years after that, senior project manager. Few few more years after that, se- you know, project director. And she was laying it out like like it was so inspiring and amazing. And I was like, my God, I'm going to waste the most productive decade of my life to climb this career ladder. I might as well do that for my own stuff and invest in my own my own stuff. Mm. And so I quit um, and that, that started kind of the, the self-employment journey. How did you just quit? <laughs> I mean, this is the privilege of being single, childless, uh, I really had very little savings. Um, so I, you, do you mean like how I did it financially or yeah. like how I actually did it? Yeah, I like the financial thing. Cause it's like, oh, just quit your job. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, I, I'm, I'm, I, I ask because I, I feel like every other person I meet, meet these days is like, I'm thinking of quitting my job. Yeah. And I'm like, great. And they're like, oh, but money. Yeah. You know what? I think living abroad had really taught me how, just how little I can get by on. It is really something I think you have to learn for yourself. Uh, in Ukraine, I think I survived on like $250 a month was my total budget. And of course that's Ukraine, right? But you just get creative. You learn that you can rely on other people. You learn that you can make money go so far when it comes to food. You can crash on people's couches. You can travel cheaply. You can have fun cheaply. You don't have to go out to a posh restaurant. You can play a card game with you know your neighbors. And so I just knew from experience in the Peace Corps, in Colombia, in Brazil, that I, I needed so little financially to get by. Of course, I was in San Francisco, the most one of the most expensive places in the United States. So I think I had about six weeks of savings. I had about six weeks that I could survive before I needed new income, mm. which t- it turns out was the best scenario. Okay. If I had had even six months, it would have been bad. Why? Because you know, six weeks, okay, I have two weeks to plan something, two weeks to launch it, and then hope that it makes money within the last two weeks. <laughs> that was literally the timeline. Yeah. And so I just went on Skillshare, which is the only, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was Skillshare. It was the only <laughs> online educational platform that I knew. Yeah. Because I didn't have time to do research. I would have spent two weeks doing research, right? So I said, no, let me just go on Skillshare. The only thing that I knew how to teach was productivity because I had taught it in the yeah. Peace Corps. And this would have been like like eight, seven years ago before they started sponsoring everyone's videos. And yes, stuff. this was 2013. Oh, wow, like nine years ago. Yeah. Okay, so you went on Skillshare. Yeah, it was just when they were pivoting because Skillshare was originally in-person classes. Okay. They would organize like workshops in cities and they, they decided that's too hard, that's too expensive. So they pivoted online. I was in that first wave, which was helpful, right? 
and I just uh, didn't even have time to research different subjects. I just got the Getting Things Done book, which was the most recent book that I had read. Like the 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 how little of research and preparation I did when I look back was just it was just insane. But I just had no time. Right? It's Parkinson's law again. <clears throat> so I just created a course based directly on this book, which I can't recommend exactly because I almost got in trouble with the law. Um, I had to put a disclaimer, you know, this is not officially approved by the David Allen Company, so it was fine. Uh, but that, that very first course, which I created within a few weeks, ended up doing well and paying the bills for like a year, year and a half. I got oh. very lucky. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what, you can, like, what were you going to do if things didn't work out in those six weeks? Which I was probably going to move home, yep. live on my parents' couch. I was starting to look at like local jobs. I applied at Target. I applied at like play, you know, little retail shops at the mall. I was, I had some plans in process because of course I didn't know it was going to work. I assumed it was not going to work. Yeah. And there was a number of things that happened that made me get very lucky. Like Skillshare picked up my course and promoted it. It was like on the front page of Skillshare. Uh, the timing was really good with productivity stuff. People were really getting interested in productivity. Online education was taking off. There, were, there was a number of factors that got really lucky. But then also, of course, it wasn't, I had tried other things, kind of like your story. Like your first overnight success is really like the 10th thing that you try, yeah. right? Um, so it was a combination of luck, chance, timing. Uh, but then I used that year, year and a half it was barely enough year, uh, barely enough money to make it a year, year and a half to, to just really for the next three, four years, I just strung together literally like one or two months of rent at a time. I would go work an event, make a, another few hundred dollars. I would do a random consulting project for a friend, make another, you know, couple thousand dollars. I really, for a good three or four years, it was like month to month, maybe a few months at a time. If I had three months of rent paid, yeah. that was like plenty of runway. <laughs> And I guess you, it, it would be kind of irresponsible to take those sorts of risks now, now that you have like a family and a kid yeah. and stuff to support. Yeah. So the, the ability to take those sorts of asymmetrical risks where mm -hmm. oh, the downside's capped, but the upside is potentially huge. Actually, it's a lot easier to do when you're not supporting a family. Yeah. Um, like it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. So one of my, one of my close friends is, uh, you know, this uh, friend working this management consulting job earning way more than six figures a year mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, I know I want to quit my job, but like, how will I get back to that level of income? Yeah. I'm like, do you, do you really need 150K a year to mm -hmm. survive as a single person when you can just go home and live with your parents? She's like, oh, but I don't want to do that. Yeah. Like, okay, fine. But like, if you had to, is that like a bad thing? She was like, no, no, it's not really. Yeah. It's like, what are you actually scared of? And it reminds, it reminds me of the story of, you know, there's that cartoon of or some kind of uh, parable where there's this kid and their dad and they go to the zoo mm -hmm. and they see these two elephants. Mm -hmm. and one's a little baby elephant and one's a big mama elephant. Mm -hmm. And the baby elephant has a chain, a metal chain attached to its leg. Mm -hmm. And the, dad, the kid's like, daddy, why is there a chain attached to the leg of the elephant? Mm -hmm. uh, and the dad's like, oh, well, you know, this, you know, baby elephants like, mm -hmm. to, like to run around, they like mm -hmm. to escape. And so, you know, the chain stops them from escaping. And, yeah. and then they look at the mama elephant, who's huge and enormous. Yeah. And she's got this little piece of string yeah. attached to the foot. And yes. Chilling, and it's just hanging out. And I think that's such a good like metaphor for these invisible shackles, these limiting beliefs that hold us back. Yes. I, I run into this all the time myself where I'm like, oh my God, what if the business falls? What if like this and that? And then I speak to someone and I was like, bro, you've got like 10 years of runway. Yeah. Just by, you know, I've, I've seen your investment video. You literally have 10 years of runway. I'm yeah. like, shit, you're right. And like, are crazy. you really telling me that in the next 10 years, you won't be able to figure something out? It's crazy. I'm like, why do you need 150K a year to live? Like you can literally just move back home or hang out with friends and make something happen. Yeah. 
I, it really is true. It's, um, you know, the fact that, that the, my salary at that consulting job was so low, it was criminally low, like it was barely survivable in San Francisco, was a blessing because I had nothing to lose. You know, I'm just gonna go from one subsistence salary to another subsistence, yeah. subsistence salary. And so I think you need constraints. Yeah. Like the best way to destroy someone's motivation and productivity and momentum, give them a ton of money, give them a ton of time, give them a ton of freedom. When you have an overabundance of those things, you just start floating in space because there's no hard line. There's no wall, there's no constraint for you to push up against. And, and for, that's gonna force you to kind of make a, make a choice. Yeah. Yeah, this reminds me of something I read in a business book recently around like kind of building startups mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. where it, it's kind of the idea that um, before a business has figured out their money printing machine, mm-hmm. it's very exhilarating, very, very like mm-hmm. all hands on deck. We need, mm-hmm. to, we need to make this happen. There is a sense of urgency, a sense of energy about the place. Mm-hmm. As soon as the business has figured out what its money printing machine is mm-hmm. and now they scale and now mm-hmm. they get more people on board, yeah. suddenly you start care- caring about bullshit things like... Yeah. Oh, I want everyone to only be working six hours a day. I want to make sure we have bean bags. I want to make sure we have massages at work and yes. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And you often hear from people that the early days were in a way more fun yeah. than the scaling days when we had the table tennis table and the bean bag and all the perks that you could you could dream for. Yes. Because there is this sense of urgency when you're like, I need to make this work. Yeah. And once it's working, you're like, then it's a lot. It's very easy to just be like, oh, life is good. That's very true. If that's the way you want to live life. Um, But I think there is then a danger of, you know, a lot of big businesses move Mm -hmm. so much slower than smaller businesses. A lot of big businesses are at risk of potentially failing because they don't have that momentum that a scrappy startup does. Absolutely. I think that same kind of principle applies to our personal lives as well. Yeah. That there is a level of like keeping up the scrappiness, which is just generally fun. As long as it doesn't overly burn you out and stress you out to the point where it's like chronic over such a long period of time. Yes. But there is some energy in... You know, the, the idea of hormesis and, you know, what yes. doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yes. Like a little bit of calorie restriction is mm-hmm. good for the body. Mm-hmm. A little bit of sleep deprivation is good for us. A little mm-hmm. bit of like having to run and like be in a stress situation is good for us. Yeah. Um, whereas if we're a couch potato with a catheter mm-hmm. and like a video game controller all day, living a very comfortable life, um, then, you know, <laughs> there's not much progress there. Yeah, it's it's very true. Um, so what what was it in your journey that then caused things to, quote, take off as it were how did you move away from the subsistence subsistence living month to month kind of lifestyle yeah so it's it kind of slowly changed and i tried i tried so many things for a while i thought let me go into consulting because that has super low overhead right it's just one person didn't wasn't very good at that didn't enjoy it much then i went into corporate training because i thought "I, i know how to teach that was more profitable that's when the money started getting better but I was just in these environments working in Silicon Valley for some of the you know wealthiest corporations in the world, and I lost the humanitarian service side. Okay. Right, I was working you know for these companies, just making the the world's wealthiest companies even wealthier, which is no problem with that. Remember, as we were saying, but it just wasn't very satisfying. I needed to work with people who were just starting out, people who were in need, people who had a problem. Um, and so, so, but at the same time, I was taking elements of all these things, like from consulting, even though it didn't really work, I learned how to talk to companies. That's a skill to be able to come into a business meeting and have a business conversation, right? Uh, I learned how to price things. I learned just how much money corporations have and how much they're willing to spend without, you know, without that difficult of a process. From corporate training, 
I learned how to structure, you know, trainings. I learned how to design workshops. I learned how to uh, to deliver content in a way that a professional uh, could take in and take seriously. Uh, but then I went to online education. Actually, even online education didn't really work because I had had that first GTD self-paced course. And so I thought, oh, this is my jam. The first, my first try was a success. I, I'm a master. Well, the second and third and fourth attempts failed because GTD has a built-in audience, has a built-in, it's a movement. And so there's like a ready-made demand. Um, I had much more difficulty. In fact, I, I haven't to this day launched another successful self-paced course. Mm. So that also was not my skill. I didn't have the production capabilities. I didn't have the planning capabilities. And so I just kept trying things, trying to find my niche. And it ended up being the most, you know, something I would have never guessed, which was cohort-based courses was taking the business stuff from consulting, the training from corporate training, the teaching of self-paced courses, combining all of them into an online course, but one that is delivered live via Zoom in a way that doesn't require so much polish, doesn't require so much preparation, because I'm not good at that, uh, but was all about the human connection and about interaction and coaching through Zoom. Wow, and I guess all of that has now culminated in this book. Yes. Building Second Brain, a proven method to organize your digital life and unlock your creative potential. Like how long have you been running the course? What's been the, what was the story of kind of the, the course and its sort of growth? Yeah, so it's wild because I never, I never made long-term plans for this. I never tried, I never thought much into the future. I really just ran one cohort at a time. So I did a, like a beta cohort in like December, 2016. Uh, cohort one, the first official cohort was like January, February, 2017. Uh, and now is this now we're in the the spring summer of 2022 we've, we've yeah. done 14 cohorts which is just insane to me like I really the same way earlier that I went from pay, from paycheck to paycheck and then one month's rent to the next month's rent I was kind of used to that I was used to very short-term you know finances I really for the first like seven eight nine cohorts it was just make enough money in this cohort to run the next one that's mm. all I thought about until okay. very recently uh, and it just kept going, each cohort a little bit better, a little more profitable, a little bit bigger, until I could uh, you know, afford to do things like hire a team and hire, hire people. How did you get your first few customers? It was all friends. Okay. It was, I think I, I had a personal relationship with every single person in the first cohort. It was like colleagues, former coworkers, people in that coworking space that I had met over lunch, friends, exes, yeah. I, I just, went into my social network and was like, any favor that I have. Yeah. And it really was them doing me a favor. Yeah. <laughs> those early cohorts, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to those people because it was, I would just show up on a Zoom call, maybe with some slides. Yeah. And it was just extemporaneous. It was, it was improvised. Uh, around cohort six, seven, or eight, I started to really have pride in what we were doing. Oh, wow. <laughs> how, how much were you charging in the early days? So it started at 500. 500? Yeah, which wow. was cohort one, which okay. was a huge... Does that sound cheap or expensive? That sounds really expensive. It was, yeah. right? Because it was, my, my self-paced course previously was 50 bucks yeah. or even less. It was like 25. At the time, that it was an outrageous price. Yeah. Um, it was a really, it was kind of just this bold leap to say, if I'm going to get on calls with you over the course of a month, if yeah. I'm going to coach you, interact with you, consult with you, if I'm going to be your personal second brain expert, yeah. you know what it really was? I charge not as an online course creator, I charge as a consultant. 
Mm. It was as if I was your personal consultant, which with that framing, five hundred dollars yeah. is cheap. That's, that's really cheap. It's, yeah. it's like a reframe, yeah. right? It's like five hundred dollars for an online course. Oh shit, that's really expensive. But five hundred dollars for like, yeah, yeah, basically corporate training is like that's way too cheap. It's so it cheap. It must be so bad. It's, it's that cheap. And we increase yeah. the price. So every cohort, I would release a whole bunch of improvements. Yep. Increase the price by hundred dollars. So I went 600, 700, 800, 900. There was always a reason that it got more expensive, which was like the new features. Yeah. Uh, until we re reached $1,500 for the lowest tier. Oh, and then we started uh, releasing new tiers, a second tier, a third tier. Uh, we stopped at 1500 because I wanted it to be accessible, mm. which is funny because like $1,500, you know, with one framing is not accessible at all, mm. but we could also just continue to raise the price. But I, I kind of want it to be something that is on par with like a weekend vacation, yeah. or going to a conference yeah. or investing in a personal coach or consultant like $1,500 yeah. is it's a serious amount of money but it's there are other things in life that we invest $1,500 in yeah I think it's an interesting price point because to some people watching and listening to this they'll be like $1,500 like how can you possibly charge mm -hmm. that much for something that's completely freaking absurd mm -hmm. cannot believe it mm -hmm. you're a snake oil salesman mm -hmm. for another segment of people watching this it's like $1,500 that's like 10 times cheaper than the corporate training I spent like 15 grand on last week yeah and it's just like completely different approaches to money yeah and one thing that quite a lot of my <clears throat> consulting friends have said mm -hmm. is that working in consulting makes mm -hmm. you realize how broken the world of money actually is mm -hmm. because like the amount that corporations have oh. to spend oh is so astronomically different you yeah. cannot even fathom the scale of it compared to yeah. the day-to-day -day that we spend being like that three dollar fifty coffee at starbucks was a little bit expensive yeah two, two pounds seventy seems a bit more a bit yeah. more reasonable yeah and in a way unless you've you know i i often struggle to kind of explain stuff to my mom in this sense where she's like wait you're spending how much on this course or how much on this office or how much on these team members like why can't you just do everything yourself like you're doing it yourself and i'm like for, for someone who doesn't have experience in in business yeah thinking about five six five six figure expenses it's yeah. like bloody hell that's like 10 years worth of salary yeah um but it's just like a different uh, yeah it's a completely different mindset because it's tax deductible yeah that i mean i'm in california some of the highest taxes in the u.s you're in europe mm. it's just a completely different mindset because you are paying with that pre-tax so you actually want to spend money. It is to your benefit to find as many ways as you can spend money as possible because then your your tax bill is, yeah. the government is in a way paying you to spend money. Yeah, They're giving you like a refund on your taxes because you've made these investments in your business. Yeah, and I guess there's, there's gonna be some people that think, oh, tax avoidance, bad. But another segment's like, well, I mean, this is how economics works. We want people to spend money. Yeah. And providing a tax incentive for a business to spend copious amounts of money yeah. on individuals doing corporate training or small businesses mm -hmm. or big businesses it's mm -hmm. like that's literally how the world works yeah <laughs> like businesses spending money and like money essentially you know people hate on the idea of trickle-down economics yeah because i think it's sort of that that phrase then sort of gets used and applied to the wrong things yeah and it really is like a business where tons and tons of money to spend yeah. spends that money on sort of the smaller vendors and they spend money on the smaller vendors and the yes. smaller suppliers and you end up with this effect where like the whole economy moves yeah with that sort of that sort of thing yeah that's how it works. I mean, yeah, it, we do everything obviously by the book. You have to, it's just yeah. not worth it. You do everything by the book, but the government is shaping your behavior. Mm. They're saying, spend money here, don't spend it there. We're just we're just following the incentives and, yeah. and spending money accordingly. Yeah, like the government says like, you can't tax deductibleify clothing, for example, here, mm -hmm. but you can mm -hmm. training. And mm -hmm. so 
I'm not going to buy a fancy suit for me to wear in video videos because that's not legit. Yeah. But like buying a course, it's like, hell yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then in a way that incentive encourages investment in education and training yes. in a way that it doesn't encourage investment in clothing or in alcohol or in petroleum or whatever things are not tax deductible. That's how it works. Let's talk about some of the concepts in the book. You mentioned something in, earlier in our conversation, the idea of just in time. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? What, is, what does just in time mean for productivity? Yeah. So this goes back to manufacturing. This is, I mean, just in time manufacturing completely changed the entire world we to, to an extent that we don't realize hmm. not a lot of people know this history but toyota uh motor company the you know the maker of cars they introduced this way of building cars which was instead of stockpiling all the resources you need you know all the, the parts and the rubber and all the different things you know i don't know on the factory floor they would have this network of suppliers where they would decide what car they're going to produce and then just in time just days or even hours before they would just pull they would bring all the parts into the factory produce it right then and ship it off which sounds like this weird esoteric like why does that matter it matters tremendously by using things just in time using resources just in time you not only improve speed which is nice you improve uh, efficiency which is great but an unexpected thing with that is you improve quality. Okay. Quality gets radically higher. Why? It's it's kind of hard to explain. It's interesting. It's basically think about <clears throat> let's take auto manufacturing. If you have a bunch of I don't know tires, right? That you stockpile a thousand or ten thousand tires, and then you start putting them onto the production line. You find an error. You find a mistake, a defect. What do you do? If you've stockpiled a thousand or ten thousand tires, you just keep quiet and you just let them all go through. Because what are you going to do? You can't return them. That that one defect has been replicated a thousand or ten thousand times. Uh, and so, by keeping another way of saying this is keeping inventories low. You don't want a lot of work in process. Work in process is anything that is like in in operation, in process that that is ongoing currently. Uh, and then applying this to knowledge work, it's interesting. We also want to keep work in process low. When you're doing too many things at once, I mean, this is just basic time management. When you have 25 projects at once, quality is going to suffer, efficiency is going to suffer, time is going to be wasted. Yeah. So you want to work on few things at once. Yeah, because I guess working on 10 things at once rather than, in a way, one thing at a time, there's there's not a linear relationship between mm-hmm. I have 10 projects, therefore it takes, you know, I can do 10 things with a tenth of the time mm-hmm. in the same amount. Of time. Like, it, there's, there's some efficiency that you lose out on by having so many bits in progress. Yes. But similarly, I think just doing things one at a time is also for me not the sweet spot because sometimes Uh my energy is like, oh, I actually want to work on this thing or I can be less of a bottleneck in thing X if I focus on thing Y or words to that effect. Yeah. Um, So how does that like just this idea of just in time versus just in case, how how does that relate to, I guess, personal productivity for us in our kind of work and personal lives? Yeah, so I would say just in case is how we were kind of educated, which is you do everything way in advance you do it as perfectly as possible as early, as soon as possible uh which is okay if you know what's going to happen right if you're taking a class in school you know i need to study each lesson each unit each paper each reading assignment is important simply because the professor has said you know study this hmm. but then you leave school and it's it's a radically higher level of uncertainty you don't know right if you spend six six months researching a topic that topic may never come in handy. You may never need that skill. You may never need that knowledge. So you have to be much more dynamic and fast moving and 
basically, you can think of it like just-in-time learning. Learn something, acquire knowledge right when you need it, use it fast, like we've been talking about. Get the results, get the feedback, learn, make another iteration, do it again, rather than stockpiling and growing this huge reserve of you know, material before you even start. By the way, quick break from the podcast to mention my completely free five-day email crash course for creatorpreneurs. Now, a creatorpreneur is basically this portmanteau, I think the word is. It's a mashup of creator and entrepreneur. It's basically a creator who wants to scale up their creative side hustle and turn it into more of a business. And in this completely free five-day email crash course, every day I send you an email where I go over some of the lessons that I've learned over the last five years of building up this creatorpreneur business from the ground up to the point that it's doing probably something like $5 million in revenue every year. Within that, you'll also get a completely free set of links to resources from other successful creatorpreneurs that you can use yourself. Again, it's completely free. So if you want to sign up to the five-day email crash course, then you can stick your email at the link in the video description or in the show notes. Anyway, let's get back to the episode. So the, the book is titled Building a Second Brain, a proven method to organize your digital life and unlock your creative potential. Um, I, this is a, a thing that we probably should have addressed earlier, but like, what the hell is a second brain and why is it? <laughs> Why does it help you organize your digital life and unlock your creative potential? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, a second brain, think of it, think of things you already do. So you might have a journal <clears throat> or a diary. Imagine if everything you wrote in that journal or diary was saved forever, was searchable, that you could actually drive insights from it. You could go ask it a question. What have I thought about money in the past? What have I thought about personal growth? How have my dates been in the past? What did I learn? You could actually mine the insights from that. That's a journal or diary. Now imagine uh, notes you took from books or articles. Now imagine even practical things like grocery lists, uh, packing lists, travel itineraries. Okay, now add bookmarks from, that you saved from the web. Now add any kind of document that you've created from the past. All these things are things we largely already do to some capacity, but now imagine getting all of that material, which like we said, is just data all of that stuff is just information. And you you save it, you centralize it all in one single central place where you know it will be preserved forever. You know you can always search for things. You know you can, once it's saved in the same place, start to link things together, start to tag it, start to organize it. What would be the value? What would be the, you know, what would be the value of the the aggregated sum of all that material? That's your second brain. Okay. So a cynic would say that, well, what is the value of that? Why yeah. do I care if my, like, surely, if, isn't it a bad thing if my private journal is in one place for some mm -hmm. co evil corporation to access forever? <laughs> like, why do I need to care about my shopping lists? Yeah, yeah, books I've read, I've read a few fiction, I've read Twilight, I've read mm -hmm. Fifty Shades of Grey. In addition mm -hmm. to getting things done, why does it matter if it's all in one place? Yeah, I would say a few things. If you make anything, and I'd say more of us are makers or creators than you would think, right? If you're writing long emails, if you're writing reports, memos, analyses, project plans, like most knowledge workers have some, virtually all knowledge workers have some kind of output. You can't just sit down and make something from scratch. Or if you do, it won't be very good. You won't have a lot of kind of interesting ideas to add to it. You need as a creative person, some repository, some store of ideas and insights to draw from, or else you're gonna be doing that classic thing that we wanna avoid, which is looking at the blank page or looking at the blank screen, right? And trying to come up with an idea, yeah. which is one of the, the worst experiences. I would say even broader than making things, think about decisions. A decision is something that you in a sense create, right? You take into account all this information, all these inputs, what 
your team thinks, what your colleagues think, how the economy is doing, what people in your industry say. You are incorporating all of those inputs into a decision. I would say that is something that you need to draw on existing material. Uh, any kind of outcome. Right, like it's it's difficult to to go out in the, into the world sort of naked mm. in idea terms and make things happen without any research, without any creative raw material, without any planning. Yeah, it's it's just hard to do. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, so the way that I kind of you know when, when people ask me, oh, what's the deal with the second brain thing? I'm like, it's basically a you know a. Mm. a digital note-taking system mm -hmm. that you can put anything into mm -hmm. and that you can then use for the things mm -hmm. that you actually care about yeah so i think this is very easy to give an example to if you're for example a writer mm -hmm. you know there's this idea of a commonplace book mm -hmm. which is a, a thing from from mm -hmm. back in the day where anytime you read a book or you have an insight or you have an idea mm -hmm. you write it down in this one book mm -hmm. and now if you have multiple of these books that you've collected through 10 years of your life mm -hmm. and you come to writing a book you're like mm -hmm. cool I now have all of these insights I've already gathered. I've already got the raw materials. It's mm -hmm. almost like taking notes in class. Yeah. You, If you're then writing an essay, you're mining the notes you've taken in class, doing a little bit, a little bit of Googling, but mostly mm -hmm. doing it from stuff you've read in class, wider reading, other insights, maybe a little note that sparked mm -hmm. when you were in a lecture. Mm -hmm. And then you're assembling your essay based on those raw materials yeah. rather than assembling your essay from the blank page yeah. or attempting to assemble your essay via a Google search where yeah. you're just going to be uh, derailed by SEO content marketers who are writing the most boring ass listicles to yeah. help drive content for their things. Exactly. So in a way, you're creating your own Google. <laughs> yeah. Your own sort of external brain, your second brain that you can then search for relevant things. Yeah. And I guess that that's that's easy enough to think about. Like, let, let's say if you're a student and you're writing essays, mm -hmm. easy enough if you're like a YouTuber, you're like, mm -hmm. cool, mm -hmm. I get to mine this for content ideas. Mm -hmm what about like not th not obvious things like that or well, what other use cases are there for a second brain outside the scope of i make quote content creator slash student yeah you know there's all these little mundane things <clears throat> just from people's everyday lives like i'll give one very simple example i'm driving by the hardware store as a parent it's like i have to make use of every single minute if i'm driving by the hardware store I want to take advantage of that opportunity. Opportunistically, no. Is there anything that I could just pop in, pull in right here, pick it up from the hardware store, which is across town, right? Rather than trying to, from my home, set aside all this time to go to the hardware store. Yeah. So how? So here's the question. How can I, within seconds, look at some resource, some place, and know all the things that I might want to pick up at the hardware store? And I did that. I actually have this as a case to, as a like a micro case study in the book. I, I went into my notes, went into the project folder for the studio that we were building, went into one note that had things to pick up at the hardware store, right? Which I could have also done a search for. And then right there in the note, I kind of reorganize it, put some things at the top, put some things in a section that says, don't worry about it for now. And that way it's like I can take advantage of a spontaneous opportunity in my day, mm. which is driving by this hardware store to also pick up those items, which I would never be able to remember. Right. And it would also be hard to sit there in the parking lot and try to like make a new list and try to remember all the things that we were talking about two weeks ago that I have to pick up. Okay. So it's like your second brain is, is, is offloading functionality from your own brain to be forced to remember things like three weeks from now when I happen to be swinging by the supermarket, what are the things that I need to grab? Yeah. And so it's not just like notes mm -hmm. that you're taking from lectures, as it were, or videos that you watch or books that you read. It's also to-do lists for projects that you're working on. Let's say you're remodeling mm -hmm. your studio. Let's say you're, I don't know, getting something installed in your kitchen. Let's mm -hmm. say you're trying to make your bedroom look a little bit nicer. Yeah. The, those are all, I guess, projects yes. in our life. 
Yes. And unless you're used to thinking like a productivity nerd, mm. you might not think of them as projects. Like, yes. you know, install bookshelf in bedroom or sort out cable management on desk setup. Like, yeah. what do I need for that? Well, I need some cable ties. I need one of those like plastic boxes to put shit into. Yeah. I need some kind of cleaning implement for my keyboard because my keyboard's a freaking mess. Um, I, I'm not going to bother getting those things right now. So let's just chuck them in a to-do list such that next time I happen to swing by the hardware store, I can just pick up those things and it becomes a sort of seamless part of my life. Is that kind of the idea? <clears throat> exactly. Yeah, I think people sometimes, they think, oh, second brain, this is this advanced futuristic technology. It's going to be this like, you know, exoskeleton that's going to give me new powers and new capabilities. Sure, maybe eventually. But instead, think about instead of the top of your skill hierarchy, the bottom. What is the stuff that you're trying to memorize? What is the stuff that you're trying to keep in mind? Right? You know, these little things, are you trying to keep in mind, you know, your the homework assignments your kid has to complete this week that you're helping them with? Are you trying to keep in mind, um, you know, places you want to visit next time you're in this country? Are you trying to keep in mind the ideas from the meeting with your boss last week? Are you trying to keep in mind ideas that have come up in a marketing meeting? You probably don't even realize it, right? Because we were never taught, oh, that thing you're trying to keep in mind, don't keep that in mind. In fact, we're usually taught, keep this in mind, remember this. Like, you can even notice the things people say in little these little conversational moments. They're like, oh, can you, can you remind me of this? Or keep this in mind? Or bring this up next time? I'm always like, no, <laughs> I can't. I'm a, a fickle, fragile human being. I have to write it down. So what happens if, is if you replace the, instead of adding new levels of thinking, replace the bottom levels, which then frees up your time, frees up your attention, frees up your energy, which you can then dedicate to those higher levels. Yeah. Yeah. The way I think of it is like, um, think of it, uh, it's like my brain is a dumbass mm -hmm. and I don't trust my brain to remember anything at all. Mm -hmm. And so if it's important, I need to write it down somewhere. Yeah. And then I need to remember where I've written it down. Yeah. And so the more second nature that becomes and the more i know that all of my things go in this folder yeah all my things go in this app all my things go in this particular notebook yeah the more likely i am to remember the things that actually matter to me exactly and i've i started applying this in the in the realm of people as well mm -hmm. so i have like a people folder in my apple notes mm -hmm. where um anytime i have a conversation with someone and if i remember to do it i'll just quickly be like oh mm. had a chat with danny on the 16th of April, mm. 2022, we mm. talked about X. He's mm. thinking of moving to America. Mm. He'll be in America for a, for a month, coming mm. back on the 14th of May. Mm. Cool, that's fine. Sounds mm. a bit banal. But next time I speak to Danny, which might be two months later, mm. I look at that note like, oh, oh yeah, he was in America for a week, mm. oh, for, for a month. How was your trip to America, Danny? Mm. And then it's like, oh, you remembered. Uh, and it's like, we're totally cool with writing down people's birthdays. Yeah. As like, oh, you know, I'm not going to remember someone's birthday, but I know it's important that I remember their birthday so I can send them something. And yeah. therefore, I'm going to write it down. Yeah. But there are also so many things about like, you know, people that we know that we want to remember yeah. that we just don't trust our brain to. Yeah. Like, I don't know how old your kid is. I don't know how old Francesco's kid is. I know that you guys have kids and maybe mm. sort of have another kid on the way. <laughs> I, I have dozens of friends who are in the process of getting married in the various stages of pregnancy. It's like, yeah. how do you keep track of all that? It's important for those individual relationships. Yeah. But no one would be like, you know, if, if for example, you had a little address book and you kind of wrote down details. Yeah. Oh, there's something cute about it. Yeah. If you put it in an app, suddenly it's like, oh my God, you're being too systematic with your relationships. What is wrong with you? You're a robot, etc. Et yeah. It's so funny. I have a Christmas notebook, <clears throat> Christmas presents notebook. Every time I come across an item that I think could make a good gift, I just take a clip, 
take a link, take a note and put it in there. What a great idea. <laughs> and then at the end of the year, I just do a matching. I just get a list of everyone I need presents for, open up that notebook. It's it's things I haven't even looked at, you know, all year long. And then I just go, okay, this one for this person, this one for this person. As a result, everyone thinks I'm like this incredibly thoughtful gift giver. I'm the worst gift giver. Yeah. I can't remember anything. I can't remember anniversaries, birthdays, nothing. But using, I've essentially offloaded the part of my brain that would be constantly thinking or stressing out at the end of the year. Oh shoot, how do I buy all these gifts? And I'm just giving that job to my second brain. Love it. So what are the so we've got these um, kind of principles in here. Um, we have a whole longer video on your channel mm -hmm. where people can watch, and we'll link that in the video description where you and I kind of break down in detail mm -hmm. with screen shares, mm -hmm. with practical in, uh, practical thingies. Mm -hmm. And I've got a whole other video on my main channel where I kind of literally break down the ten top principles. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you can do a quick whistle stop tour through um, the principles of the second brain and tell mm -hmm. people wherever they might be able to find out more if they're interested. Yeah, so basically the book is really built around four four pillars, which are the stages of the creative process. I think the creative process is the most important part of people's productivity these days. How do you take inputs and process them in some creative way and turn them into outputs like we've talked about? Uh, and what I really sought to do is say, everyone has special things, everyone has exceptions, everyone has some unique things, but what is what is the part of the creative process that is timeless? Like we can go back to the ancient Greeks, we can go back to Roman times, we can go back to the Renaissance, the Enlightenment. What are they doing that we're still doing? Because if I can find some things, that's likely that we're gonna be, keep doing those in the future. They're timeless, right? And I boil that down, it's, it's amazing how long this took, uh, into four steps, capture, organize, distill, and express, which underlies really all kinds of work. Things have to be captured, they have to be recorded in some way, shape or form. They have to be organized in some way, categorized, classified, grouped. They have to be distilled. You have to decide what is the takeaway, what is the main point, what is the main message. And then I think the purpose of knowledge is to be shared, is to be expressed. And so the last uh, stage and the, the letters for that are C-O-D-E for code is express. How do you share it, how do you collaborate with it, how do you apply it, how do you put it into your own words, how do you put it into some form that has a positive impact on you, your family, your career, or your business. Nice, <laughs> that's a good summary. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's just kind of break these down. So capture meaning, how do I take insights and like highlights and like notes and shopping lists and anything from any aspect of my life and just write it down somewhere? Yes. Organize, now that I've written it down somewhere, mm -hmm. Where does it go? Yes. Does it get filed away in my folder for chemistry 1A? Or does it get filed away in my bedroom remodel? Uh -huh. Or does it get filed away in my kids' doctor's appointments folder? Yeah. That kind of thing. Uh -huh. Distill is then, I guess, the next step of like, for the things that I'm that are related to my kind of creative output, mm -hmm. whether it's a presentation for my work because I work as a management consultant, mm -hmm. whether it's a poster for a scientific conference I'm working on or a mm -hmm. paper for this journal submission because mm -hmm. I'm a doctor or a scientist, whether mm -hmm. it's a YouTube video because I'm a YouTuber, whether it's a blog post because I'm a writer or a podcast episode because I'm a podcast, like whatever the thing is, yeah. how do you take the stuff from the bits that you've saved and figure out what are the bits that actually matter? Because you end up saving loads of stuff and then only some of it matters. Yes. And then the express is the sort of the publishing, basically. Yes, exactly. Okay. That was a brilliant summary. Thank you. Exactly. Like re rephrasing what you said, just like a little bit worse. Um, again, I, I can see how this would very much apply in the realm of the self-help content creator mm -hmm. because that's like my jam. Mm -hmm. um, what other kind of case studies or use cases have you seen of the sort of the code concept, this second brain idea? Oh gosh, so many. I mean, <clears throat> people really, really come from all walks of life. I've seen musicians 
You know, uh, there's actually a term, hook books. A hook, the hook of a song is so important mm. that they will just write down either like individual words, turns of phrase, little sentences, uh, scenes from everyday life. Yep. You know, I saw someone in red pants get into a red cab or some just like little snapshot so that when they go to write the song, right? Imagine, oh, come up with a hook. What's a good hook? Oh my gosh. Like think of something really smart and brilliant and original. Ah, it's like too much stress. Instead, they just open up the hook book and they, they might even piece together a few of them or find some evocative little snippet yeah. and often build the whole song around the hook. Yeah, I've got a friend who's a music producer who was talking uh -huh. about this. He was like, you know, uh, a hook like, I'm in love with the shape of you. Yeah. It's just like the thing we're like, okay, we've got it. Yes. The song is successful because the hook is really good. Yes. And then everything else works around the song and they spend hours and hours and hours and hours in the studio being like, what the hell is the hook? Yes. And so I guess similar to like marketers who have a swipe file or like artists who have like a, I don't know, a mood board or an interior designer who keeps like saving things on Pinterest for inspiration yeah. as you go along. I have like a folder on my Instagram of like menswear fashion inspiration. Yes. So that when I'm, when I'm in a shop, I can be like, hmm, oh, that's a cool thing. Let's go into, I don't know, Uniqlo or something and get yeah. that particular jacket. Yeah. I guess it's that kind of idea of capture. Yes. And, and what's interesting about that is everything has a hook. This is something amazing I've, I've discovered. You know, I was talking to my, my other brother who's a ballroom dancer. Oh. <laughs> Would seem to be very different from, you know, creating self-help content, but he... He showed me that when you're ballroom dancing, there's this thing you do with your hands. It's like a flourish. You know, you you like do a turn and then you kind of reach out to the side and go and go, go like that with your hand. Yep. And he told me that's the hook. The way you can just look at someone's hand and tell how good of a dancer they are. Because that is what attracts the attention. That is what completes the movement. That is what that is this like singular moment that defines the quality of the dance. Mm. Look at a building. If you just look at a building, your eye goes to certain, it's it's not that you're looking at the whole building equally. It goes to the crowning on the window. It goes to the, some little detail. It goes to some some material. So in anything, there is some, there is one part of it that is more important. Mm. And that's like the hook. And that's, that's a great example of, it's hard to come up with those things on demand. Mm. It's hard to come up with a brilliant hook, but it is worth just in your everyday, this is what I'm saying, in your everyday life, don't make any extra special effort. Just live your, your normal life. But when you come across those moments from a museum you go to, perusing a bookstore, something you hear on TV, something you hear on the radio, something that happens to you, something you feel, just write that down. And you will be amazed when you, after a week, a month, open that thing up and you will realize you have a way more interesting life than you realize. I love it. Can we talk about this idea of constraints? Mm-hmm. Um, You've said that word a couple of times, and even before recording, you mentioned the idea of constraints. Like, what, what does, how does that relate to this kind of stuff that we're talking about? Yeah, let's see. This is a super interesting subject. I think, okay, the way I would talk about this is <clears throat> what makes knowledge work so difficult? One of the things is that there's no constraints. There's no limits. You know, how much data can you download? Mm. Essentially infinite. You know, how many, like, how many sources of information do you have? Essentially infinite. Yep. Then on the output side, how many different ways can you use an idea? Infinite. Yep. How many different kinds of projects can you pursue? How many mm. different kinds of goals could you have? Yeah. It's not that you can do it all, yeah. but the optionality is so great. It's, it's overwhelming. As humans, we were not designed to have 
such a vast optionality, mm. right? Be able to date anyone in your city, be able to eat any kind of cuisine from the entire world, be able to, you know, read any story from any corner of the world. It's it's actually maddening to have that many options. Mm. And so I think a lot of what my book is doing is creating constraints around knowledge work. It is actually reining in that optionality, the vast amount of options. Yeah. I mean, even code, right? Code is just saying, okay, right now, just capture. It's like a rule, there's a limit to it. Just write the thing down, don't worry about anything else. Mm. Then at a separate time, just organize, right? Like you're creating these very discrete stages instead of trying to do all the activities all the time, there are designated times to do different kinds of thinking. Mm. Yeah, there's such a common thing with writing as well. It's like research is mm -hmm. a step mm -hmm. and then the first draft mm -hmm. is a step and mm -hmm. then writing is a step mm -hmm. and then editing is a different mm -hmm. step mm -hmm. and ideally these things happen at different times because yeah. you need to be in a different kind of brain space yes. to do the thing yes. and if you try and do all the things at once then nothing ever gets done yes yeah i think this was one of the key things that i learned from you kind of from from your course and, and your blog that i then applied to the youtube channel of like actually you know I, idea generation is a thing that happens over time mm -hmm. slash in a in, in one sitting mm -hmm. then coming up with like title and thumbnail is mm -hmm. a very different skill to coming mm -hmm. up with the structure of the video mm -hmm. which is a very different skill to sitting down and filming the video which is very way different skill to sitting down and editing the video mm -hmm. and back in the day when I was trying to do these things all at once or one after the other for one project at a time it would feel quite overwhelming yeah whereas when I think of it like oh I've got three minutes in between patients at work cool Let's come up with a few bullet points for my next video. Yeah. Done. Or let me just generate five more video ideas or, or whatever that thing might be for other people. Um, that's how I guess you can quote, be more productive, yeah. i.e. use time more intentionally. Yeah. Whereas otherwise what I would have ended up doing is scrolling on Instagram. Yeah. And I'm so glad I spent those like three to five minute blocks here and there um, doing stuff that contributed to the thing I genuinely cared about, i.e. making YouTube videos and creating a channel and trying to you know, build this business yeah. rather than aimlessly scrolling through Instagram yeah. where I have no idea what I scrolled through and has, has added zero value to my life overall. I think that's that's such a good observation. Yeah, you're, you're, you're making use, you're able to make use of smaller amounts of time because you're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. You know, you have three to five minutes. What can you do in three to five minutes I always just think, can I make one note? A note can be one sentence, one bullet point mm. that is likely to have future value. I can, I can do that in 30 seconds, right? It could be one quote, one idea. Sometimes I even do like just the title of the note. Yeah. Can I think of, without even, I can't even think of the content. I'm too tired, I don't have time. Can I even think of the title of a note that when my future self sees that will spark ideas to then fill in the content, the body of the note. It's really amazing once you scale it down that, that low, and also have a place to save it, right? If you don't have confidence that when you hit save, that note is gonna be saved somewhere that you can then revisit it, then you're, it's not gonna be worth the trouble. Yeah. I think I think that's that's a big part of it. Yeah, and I guess this reminds me of how, like it's pretty common advice for basically any kind of creative at least, mm -hmm. to always have a notebook with you in your pocket, mm -hmm. preferably one of ours in our essentially line, that says this is gonna be fun. <laughs> um, because So that when you come across something interesting or something inspirational, you have a thing that you can just, a, a thing in your pocket to write it down. And given that most of us don't carry notebooks anymore, but we always have our phones with us, yeah. I guess the second brain is basically a sort of pocket notebook, but on steroids, exactly. so that anything can go into it, and you know it's going to be coming, it's going to come in handy at some point further down the line. Exactly. Yeah, we have our phone more than any any notebook you could ever have. Yeah. Even if you don't have your phone, if you have a tablet, if you can find a computer, log into your account, or your Apple Watch, or you know, soon there's going to be smart glasses and AirPods and all these things. 
it's it's just exactly what you said. It's that creative notebook that is so obviously useful. I mean, just look at it. Mm. You use it all the time, except in digital form. That's what we're doing. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, people often ask me, um, like, how did you manage to do all the things? How did you do the YouTube channel and stuff while working full time? I have a full time job. Like, life is so hard. I can't, I can't make time for my thing. And my thing is always like, I mean, A, find a way to make it fun and like make it make the process of the thing, doing the thing itself so energizing that it mm -hmm. makes you want to do it in the evenings or the weekends or whatever. Mm -hmm. But also like no one genuinely works for like eight to 10, 12 hours a day. There's always moments of downtime, yeah. even in the most demanding jobs, even in a, even working in medicine where there's like super, super busy day. There's always going to be a little bit of downtime for lunch, a yeah. little bit of time on the toilet where if I wanted to, I could spend those five minutes just like doing something and contributing towards this project that I really care about. Yeah. Um, and I think the the crucial thing there is like figure out what what are the things you care about, what are mm -hmm. the projects, what are the goals you're working on, mm -hmm. and then find ways to quote be more productive. Mm -hmm. I use your time more intentionally and effectively mm -hmm. to get those things because that's hopefully what is contributing to your meaningful and fulfilling life. Couldn't have said it better myself. I love nice. it. So this is a great place to end the conversation. Tiago, thank you so much for coming down. We will link to all of the things, the book, uh, your blog, your YouTube channel, um, more recently your podcast, which mm -hmm. basically is like short episodes that mm -hmm. summarize all the concepts of building a second brain. Uh, we'll link to the course as well if anyone wants to take it. I took the course three years ago now, genuinely yeah. changed my life. I was a mentor in the course as well. Mm -hmm. And we will also link over here somewhere to mm -hmm. the YouTube video that you and I are doing. Mm -hmm. And I will also have a summary of this book available on my main channel mm -hmm. uh, at the, by the time you're watching this. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. Amazing. Uh, thank, you, thank you for coming on, Tiago. Thank you so much. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you hopefully in the next episode.